Welcome back to Parsha Panorama. This week is Parsha's Miketz. And for Parsha's Miketz, what's very interesting is we pick up slightly with where we left off. It's actually two years to the day, says the Chomish, from the time that Yosef Hatzadik was forgotten initially in prison by the Sar Hamashkim, the chief butler. And what's interesting is that we're not really shifting the camera because the camera quote-unquote, at the end of Vayeshev was on Paro at Paro's birthday party, right? So Paro is having a birthday party, and the Sar Hamashkim is returned and restored to his post, and we're told you know, during that scene that the Sar Hamashkim completely forgets Yosef, okay? And now we are in, we, we are in Miketz, which is, again, two years to the day, and now, finally, Paro has this dream, and, of course, that's the beginning of the Yosef interpreting the dreams and then rising to power. Now, there are a lot of fascinating issues that can be discussed. For example, why Yosef had to be forgotten and for two years. And there are a lot of comments in the Mepharshim about this topic, and I would love to spend a lot of time on it, but it's not what we're going to talk about today. But I have plenty of material on that. So if you want to know about that, you could just reach out to me at the database at gmail.com. That's the data and then base, B-E-I-S, as, as in base medrash, at gmail.com. And I could answer any questions that you would like on that issue or anything else. And that's also the place if you want to offer a sponsorship, a donation um, for any dedication, just let me know. But in the meantime, for what we, what we need to discuss is some of the larger picture issues, because this is Parsha Panorama, and we have to get back to exactly where exactly we are in the Chumash, in the Torah, and in the larger story of this world. That is what the Torah is about. It's about the story of this world. So we know that the story that we're in is, you know, Mechiras Yosef, and just it just kind of spiraled into where it is now. Yosef was thrown in prison because of the uh, the accusation that Aishas Potiphar made against him. But you cannot forget that the story is not just about Yosef. It's interesting, we acknowledged this last week in Parshas Vayeshev, there was somewhat of a split screen, right? In the middle of Vayeshev, we veered away into the story of Yehuda and Tamar. Now, one of the questions we began to address last week was why the Torah gave us that split screen and decided to tell us about the story of Yehuda. Now, there's historical significance to that story, not just because it happened, because, again, that's not enough of a reason to give so much attention to that, um, because there's a lot of history that's not recorded. But this is obviously an important story because this is the origin of Mashiach ben David, comes from Yehuda and Tamar. So it's important that that story is recorded somewhere. Now, it, it does it thematically belong in our Chumash, and in our Parsha, or at least last week's Parsha. So one of the things we began to say um, was that there are two Geulos that Hashem is creating. Right, there's the there's the Mashiach ben David, and of course there's the Geula from Mitzrayim. We know that there's also a Mashiach ben Yosef, but in the meantime, um, Hashem had a plan to fulfill the Bris ben Habasarim, which is why um, Mechir Yosef was allowed to happen. Hashem allowed Mechir Yosef to unfold, and He even had a Malach send Yosef in that direction. 
And similarly, the Midrashim that suggests that the Malach sent Yehuda in the direction of Tamar. Now, obviously, um, again, we, we said that free choice wasn't taken away from anybody, right? Um, Yehuda did what he did, Yosef did what he did. You know, for example, just like Aisha's Potiphar, she, um, Chazal tell us that she had um, astrological insider information that she was supposed to have, um, have a child with Yosef. It ended up being through her daughter, so it could have theoretically been between Yosef and Ishus Potiphar, and he just didn't let it happen. With Yehuda and Tamar, it could have been Yehuda's son, Shela, that ended up with Tamar. But because of Yehuda's decisions and maybe, you know, whatever, the, the, all the history that you know, had to unfold a certain way, and again, Yehuda's decisions, Yehuda ended up with Tamar. But the point is we had this split screen. Today, in this particular um, issue of Parsha Panorama, we're going to talk about further significance of the split screen that we had in last week's Parsha, Parsha's Vayeshev. And it's because Parsha's Vayeshev, the story of Yehuda and Tamar, is really the beginning of understanding the split screen that we're going to have in this week's Parsha, in Miketz. Because again, this Parsha is not just about Yosef being the king, but there's the whole other side of the story. And that is the side of Yosef's brothers, and what happens with them back at home in Canaan. Now, we'll explain why all this is important soon. First, let's, let's um, throw out some of the other big questions that we need to address in this particular issue. Okay, so one of the classical questions that's asked, at least, um, I guess I don't know if I would say it's classical in the sense that the earliest, earliest commentators addressed this question. There is a Ramban who addressed this question. There's a Barbanel addressed this question. But um, this question is, is such a popular question that um, even um, contemporary, um, I guess you can call them commentators, have, uh, have written on this question. But the question of why didn't Yosef write home? Right? Why did Yosef spend so much time putting on this charade? And of course, there's the whole issue at the end of the parsha. Why did Yosef um, try to frame Binyamin? What was the whole point of that? So that's one question. We'll 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 talk briefly about that. Um, we we hinted to this question and spoke a bit about this question in the Real Talk Torah session about the rarest haftarah, or at least one of the rarest haftarahs for this week's parsha. Maybe we'll we'll do a drop on that today, but. Um, that's one question. Another question that's important um, to ask, and it's uh, it's a question that I didn't really consider until this year, and now I have a possibly a new way of looking at this question, um, looking at this phenomenon in our Parsha. A lot of people know Parsha's Miketz as being the Parsha that ends on that cliffhanger, right? Um, the cliffhanger in this Parsha is that once Binyamin finally makes it down, so, um, to, to Mitzrayim, that is. So Yosef frames Binyamin by sticking his goblet into the bag of Binyamin. We know that Yosef is the masked viceroy, and the brothers don't know that he's Yosef, and Yosef frames Binyamin, right? So, and he's, he's trying to, it seems that he's trying to gauge what their reaction's going to be. And what ultimately happens is that um, we don't really know until next week's Parsha. Now, we all know the story. We know that Yehuda's going to step forward and Yehuda's going to say we can't, um, we can't leave Binyamin behind. 
And then eventually Yehuda talks about how what this is going to do to their father, and then Yosef breaks down. But we don't get that information until next week's Parsha, so I'm already giving you spoilers for Parsha's Vayigash. The question is why the Torah presents this story and ends this Parsha with the cliffhanger. It's very uncharacteristic of the Torah to not end in such a, in a very non-conclusive way. It ends in this very open-ended way um, where you are waiting to see what's going to happen. Usually a story ends and, and it just ends. Now maybe you could say in a certain respect that Parsha's Vayeshev ended on a cliffhanger with the Saramashkin forgets Yosef, but at least it's a conclusive ending. It's the end of a chapter. This is not the end of a chapter. This is right in the middle of the story. Right, and the Torah is not a movie, it's not a novel. There's no reason why the Torah should try to leave us in suspense like that. Even though, granted, you know, if you only know the history, you know that the story doesn't, um, that doesn't um, um, end in uh, Binyamin remaining a slave to Yosef, right? So we, we know that's not how the story ends. But in terms of presentation... The Chumash gives it to us as a cliffhanger, and it really begs the question, why does the Torah end Parshas Miketz on this very clear cliffhanger? And another question is always the question that we have to address, the larger question of what is Parshas Miketz really a Parsha about? All right, if we assume that from, from beginning to end there is a larger story here, and this Parsha represents something on the larger map of the Chumash, and apparently that ends with, quote-unquote, the cliffhanger that we've been talking about. So that means that this, this represents a chapter. So what is this chapter? And this seemingly, again, non-conclusive chapter, this open-ended chapter. What is this chapter in the larger map of the Chumash? So before we address these questions, let's just break down the Parsha really quickly into its specific components. I have four sections to the Parsha, and they're very simple sections. Section number one is the story of Paro's dreams and Yosef's subsequent promotion. And then Yosef starts a family under his title as the viceroy. So Yosef impresses Paro by being the only one to interpret his dreams. We know that Hashem um, has granted Yosef a special um, expertise in dream interpretation. Yosef can see through the nevuah of dreams. And Yosef gets promoted. He, mar- he gets married to Osnas. Um, and then he has Ephraim and Menashe. Fine. Um, Menashe is born first, but okay. So that's section one. Section two, we have the famine, which Yosef predicted. And in this section of the famine, we know that the brothers arrive for the first time, and Yosef um, recalls his dreams, and then Yosef acts very harshly to them. They don't recognize him. It's clear that he recognizes them, and Yosef does not um, divulges identity. And again, this is the question that bothers many of the Mepharshim. The Ramban, for example, is bothered. How can Yosef, um, you know, you know um, not knowing you know, what happens, you know, how, not knowing how his father is doing, Yaakov, um, right, Yaakov Avinu, how he could um, keep Yaakov in pain and not, not um, send a note home. And yet, so Yosef is actively uh, keeping up a charade. So that's, that's what Yosef does in this second section, section two. Section three brings us back to Canaan, right? So 
the section two finishes with Yosef taking Shimon hostage. He says, I don't want to see you guys again until you bring down your other brother, who happens to be Binyamin. Yaakov never let the, um, the um, Shvatim bring Binyamin down. Yaakov might have suspected that something bad would happen to Binyamin, just like something bad happened to Yosef. Binyamin is the only remaining son from Rachel. Yaakov doesn't want to risk it. So now in section three, back in Canaan, Yaakov has the back and forth with his sons. And the sons are trying to bargain to allow Yaakov, um, or to, for Yaakov to allow them to send Binyamin down um, so that, that the masked viceroy can finally see Binyamin and let Shimon go and they can all get food again. And Yosef um, you know, does something very strange. He returns their money. So they have all their money. They're confused. They don't know what to do and they're panicking. And, um, you know, there's a whole mini-story there with the bargaining, right? Because um, there, there are two basic attempts um, to get Binyamin down. One is Reuven's um, uh, attempt, which uh, failed, um, and it, it fell completely flat. And then when um, then, then Yehuda came in for the save, and Yehuda ultimately convinces Yaakov to allow Binyamin to go down. Right, and so maybe we'll just drop the anchor for just a second. I would lo- I would love to spend more time on this, but what's the difference between the two uh, the two attempts? Reuven says, um, if, "If you know, I, I know you. I know you, father, lost two kids. Well, guess what? Um, and two kids, meaning um, Benjamin. Sorry, not Benjamin. Yosef and Shimon. So Reuven says, I'll put two of my kids on the line. Now, did Reuven literally mean this?" Presumably not. It was a statement of confidence that you can trust me. I would be willing to put my two sons on the line. Um, obviously, Chazal say that, that Yaakov thought Reuven was a fool for saying such a thing. And probably because this is the, um, you know, I will give you two of my kids to kill is not something that a father bereft, bereft of, of two children wants to hear. So Yehuda comes in, and when you, by the time Yehuda comes in, there are bun points this out, but it's very clear in the Chumash that um, the food has already. Um, run out by that time, right? When Ru- when Ruvain comes in and says, "Okay, Father, we don't have a choice. You gotta send Benjamin with us," and Yaakov says, "No," you know, Yaakov completely um, shuts Ruvain down, and they still had food by that time. So of course, Yaakov um, did not have to negotiate with him, and that was it. When the food runs out, that's when Yehuda comes in, um, and this is one of the big differences between Ruvain and Yehuda. Ruvain is, is quote unquote pachas kamayim. He's a little bit more impulsive. Um, Yehuda, he crouches like a lion and he waits for the right moment, which is exactly what happened here. He waited for the right moment. I'm just giving you some allusions to Parshas Vayechi, where Yaakov describes Ruvain and Yehuda, and really all of his kids. But Yehuda um, says um, he, he hasn't put any children on the line. Right? Yehuda, we know, is bereft of his own two kids, Aaron Onan, from last week's Parsha. Yehuda doesn't make any bold claims like that. He just says, I'm putting my, myself, my entire Olam Haba on the line. And again, at that point, they didn't have food. So Yehuda makes a good um, winning argument that we're all going to die either way. So you want to risk Binyamin at the, um, you know, versus you know, for sure all of us dying and all of your kids and grandkids. So at that point, Yaakov sends them down. Okay, anyway, um, there's a lot more to be said there, and I'm glad I was able to get some of it. 
but that's section three. So again, one is Yosef's promotion. Number two is the beginning of the famine. Three is back at Canaan, the bargaining for Binyamin. And finally, section four is when Binyamin is brought down, and that's where we get to Yosef's scheme where he hides the goblet and then that, that, that infamous cliffhanger that we've been talking about. Okay, so those are the sections of our Parsha. Now, before we can address some of the, uh, the, the big questions that we, that we put up here, I want to go back to that much, much larger meta question of what does Miketz represent on the larger map of the Chumash? So, as we like to give you the entire um, Torah as, as much as we can in that panoramic view, in Parsha Panorama, so we started off with creation. God created a wonderful world with the intention of giving man the ultimate good. And of course, for generations, man messed up till the point that, you know, based on man, and of course we said it depends on man's free choice. So once, uh, once um, um, mankind had failed, Hashem decided he was going to start from one man, Avram Avinu, and that eventually turned into one family. Um, and that, that family ended up being Yaakov Avinu and his family. And we said that Yaakov's family, although they are finalized in Vayetze and Vayishlach, with the birth of the 12 Shvatim, we said that it was not so simple. Because as we spoke about, there were four wives. But really, as we saw in Parshas Vayishlach, there were two camps. Right, Yaakov um, says that... Um, I tell you, Yaakov becomes um, two camps. Now, whatever that meant in Vayishlach, certainly Yaakov Avinu is fragmented. Um, and the big, the big um, credit of Yaakov's being fragmented, we have already said more than once, comes from the fact that Yaakov has a dual mission. And that dual mission is represented by what was originally supposed to be his own mission and the mission of Esav. Yaakov has to carry the weight of both of them. And that is because Esav was disqualified um, through Yaakov's um, interception of the firstborn status and the brachos from Yitzchak, all with the aid of his mother Rivka. And we spoke about the hashkafa of all of that. But the point is, for better or for worse, Yaakov has to, you know, um, he has to experience the Risbein Habasarim on the one hand, but he, and, but he also has to do it in the way that he has to carry the weight of both himself and Esav. And because of that, Yaakov is now two camps. And that's, that, that explains, that's all the background for the larger feud that really began in Vayetze, but we see it in Vayishlach, and of course we saw it in Vayeshev, the feud between the Bnei Rachel and the Bnei Leah. So this is Yaakov's life. Yaakov's life is represented by this constant battle, the Yaakov versus Esav. And it's not versus the physical Esav, but it's the hashkafa of Esav, the hashkafa of Lavan as well. It's the hashkafa of, of greed. It's the hashkafa of selfishness. It's the hashkafa of deception. This is what Yaakov's life is now made of. Yaakov has to cope with all of these things. And this is the story of Yaakov and his family. Now that we understand that, we can now also explain why Yaakov's life is so difficult and why this, the life of his children is very difficult. So that's what brought us to Parsha's Vayeshev. Now, in Vayeshev, again, we had this split screen. 
And this split screen was, on the one hand, Yosef and what's going on with him, and then we had Yehuda, what's going on with him. Yehuda is the ultimate representative of the Bnei Leah, obviously. He is the, he's the leader, and that, that, that of course, is what, what, what that is all about. Now, we're allowed to look into the future a little bit now. We know that there's going to be a reunion. Right now, Mikates, we have this sort of one-sided reunion. Only Yosef knows who he's looking at. The brothers do not quite know whom they are looking at. So this is a, this is a partial reunion. And even so, Yosef has, you know, again, Yosef hasn't revealed himself. And the question we have to address again is why? So we're going we're gonna to tackle that question right now. Bearing all the things that we just said, the split screen, the fragmented camps of Yaakov Avinu, all of that needs to be understood before we get onto this question. So the big question as to why Yosef didn't write home. So again, there's, there's a lot written on this. There are a few pr- main approaches. One is the prophecy approach, as, as I like to call it, offered by the Ramban, the Gura, the Moshav Zikhanim. They all say that Yosef understood from his dreams that there was supposed to be a destiny of his brothers and eventually Yaakov Avinu bowing to him. And Yosef did not want to um, reveal himself because had he done so, he would not, um, you know, the, the dreams would not have come true. And Yosef understood that it was his job to bring out the fulfillment of the prophecies. Now, the, the, one of the big questions on this approach is that we're, we don't really have a precedent for that, that, that sort of thing that a person has to um, go through the motions to make sure a prophecy comes true. Usually a prophecy comes true regardless. If it's a prophecy, that's usually how it works. That's one of the classic approaches. There's another approach that, that's offered by the Rebbeinu Yonah and the Sefer HaChassidim. They both say a similar approach. You can call it the Lashon Hara slash Cherem approach that um, uh, either one, the Lashon Hara approach, is that Yosef wasn't sure how to write home to his father and let and, you know, let him know what happened to him. He would do that at the expense of speaking Lashon Hara um, against his brothers. That's what got Yosef into this problem in the first place, so Yosef would not, um, did, did not know how to do that. And there are some Mepharshim that say that till Yaakov's dying day, Yosef never told Yaakov what happened what, with his brothers, and Yosef constantly avoided the subject. In terms of the cherem, some say that you know, Yosef was included in the cherem, that there was a ban that the brothers formally made, and you couldn't break that ban. You're not allowed to say what happened on that day that Yosef was sold. Okay, so that's, one, that's another approach. The approach that I think is most important for our discussion is the approach that's offered in part by the Abarbanel, the Malbim, Rav Hirsch, the Kliakar, the Chassam Sofer. They, they, and I believe many others, say a similar approach. Um, you know, the, the, that's, that's the redemption approach. Um, I'll just give honorary mention to the contemporary approach from Rabbi Yol ben Nun. Um, you know, like the, I, um, the reason why I'm hesitant about the approach is because I, ha- I didn't see it in the Mepharshim. It is creative. It's interesting. It's the approach that suggests that Yosef didn't really know if Yaakov wanted to see him again. For all Yosef knew, Yaakov was in on sending Yosef away. Yosef thought that he was getting the Asa of Yishmael treatment, that he was being um, kicked out of the family. And this, is, this makes sense somewhat when you see that Yosef is um, put on an Ishmaelite um, or Yishmaeli caravan. So Yosef is just is, is still getting all of his information. So I think there are aspects of this approach that are that are very compelling. 
Um, and, and I think this can in part um, work with some of the other approaches, but the redemption approach offered by the Abarbanel of Hirsch, Malbim, others, um, is that Yosef was trying to create the scenario in which his brothers can do a full teshuva. Yosef wanted to see, and not that he just wanted to, but he saw that his avoda was he needed to see that his brothers were really um, different people. Now, we know that there's regret the brothers express their regret in this week's Parsha. Yosef sees them express their regret. And guess what? Yosef does not give in at that point. Just because he hears them saying, oh, we should have never sold our brother, Yosef, you would think that would be the time that Yosef um, you know, gives up the charade. He doesn't. So we, and this, this really gets back to the story of the Haftarah, right? So, um, the, the, this rare Haftarah for Parsha's Miketz, usually Miketz is Shabbos Hanukkah. This year it was not like that. And as a result, um, we we get on um, this Shabbos we get to read the Haftarah of Shlomo HaMelech and the, the court case over the custody of the baby with the two the two women arguing who who the baby belongs to. So, well, um, the way I analyzed that Haftarah in light of its connection to the Parsha is exactly what Shlomo HaMelech does. That's what Yosef does. Yosef he uh, he he puts uh, he puts it to the test. He says, what if I put the child in danger, so to speak? We know Binyamin's not actually a child. He's called a na'ar in our parsha, but um, according to Chazal, believe it or not, Binyamin is already a father of ten at this time of the story. Yeah, you know, we think of Binyamin as the child, but according to Chazal, that was, you know, that was Binyamin. He was a father of ten. But in the meantime, put the na'ar, put the child in danger, see what's going to happen. Right, that's what happened with Shlomo HaMelech and the true familial love, the parental love of the mother, that came out and Shlomo HaMelech said, this is the real mother. So that's what Yosef does with his brothers. He says, are, are, you know, I, I saw that they come back for Shimon. Are they going to come back for Binyamin? Do they, do they see Binyamin as a brother? And Yosef literally put them in the same kind of situation as he was in when they sold him or when they allowed him to be sold so many years ago, right? Because now the question is, are they going to sell out Binyamin or are they going to fight for Binyamin? This is what Yosef is trying to figure out because it seems that this is what it all depends on. Now, we'll come back to this question very soon of, again, what, um, how, how long was Yosef really... Um, planning on continuing this charade, right? So Yosef is still learning information. Perhaps he doesn't know if he can even trust his brothers when they say that his father's alive. You know, there's actually a very great essay that that summarizes all of these approaches. Um, A friend of mine, Cheski Blau, sent me um, an essay from, um, I believe it was uh, Rav Menachem Liebtag, and if you want this essay, I could send it to you. It's a very good essay that summarizes all of the opinions, and he gives his own analysis. Um, but in the meantime, Yosef Hatzadik has an agenda. It's a very clear, it's, it's um, I guess you could say in terms of the brothers, it's covert, but in terms of us as the, the readers of the Chumash, it's pretty overt that, that Yosef has an agenda. So the question is, what is that agenda? So that's what we're going to work on right now. So now, getting through this Parsha, we mentioned that there are these two camps, 
Right, and the goal is to unify the two camps. We have the Bnei Rachel, we have the Bnei Leah. Yaakov is, is two people now. So, why exactly is it important that we had the story last week, the split screen between Yosef on the one hand, Yehuda on the other? And the reason is that, the same reason why it's important that we saw um, the, the conversation between Yaakov and his sons back in Canaan. Right, it's, it's interesting. The Chumash doesn't need to tell us every detail in the story, but we're told about the encounter between Yosef and his brothers. We're told about the encounter between Yaakov and his sons. And it's interesting because the, the Torah drops the anchor once Yaakov has a family, and it seems that we get a lot of history. Like, we get the entire story, and it's because the story revolves around these two camps. You need to see every conversation that's recorded here. Because every conversation, conversation that's recorded here, it explains what is the mission, what is the calling of each of Yaakov's two camps. So, why did we learn about Yehuda and Tamar? At least in terms of this narrative. It, seemed to be, it seems to have been a digression from the story, but it's not a digression from the story. The story of Yehuda and Tamar is the story where we learn that Yehuda has the capacity to take responsibility, to admit when he's wrong, and to, to be a leader. And not just be a leader, but we see Yehuda rising up. Just like um, uh, in, in Vayeshev, we saw Yosef rise up. He was put into the, you know, the bottom of the heap, but then he, he, um, you know, he, he was in, t- in charge of Potiphar's home, but then he gets thrown in prison. But even in prison, Yosef is on top. That's the beginning. These are all the beginnings of Yosef rising to the throne. Well, Yehuda as well, rising to the throne, begins with the story with Tamar. We see the making of a hero in Yehuda in that story. He, in fact, is a hero in that story. But why is that part of the story important? Because that is the perfect background for what happens in Parshas Miketz. In Parshas Miketz, we mentioned that Yaakov has this back and forth. I'm not giving you Binyamin to bring him down. The brothers say, we don't have a choice. This is what we have to do. And Yehuda ultimately is the one that stands up and says, I'm going to take responsibility for him, and I'm going you know, to be his guarantor. Now, that, that, that Lushan of being a guarantor, an Erevon, or an Arev, we find that that, that word, Rabbi Foreman points this out, um, we find that word floating around in the story of Yehuda and Tamar. So, the reason why this is all important is that we see from the story of Yosef, or from the, from, from the standpoint of Yosef, and from the, the standpoint of the brothers, we see the beginnings of this readiness for them to reunite. Okay? We see, on the one hand, the brothers clearly regret what they have done. Yosef learns this, again, in Parshas Miketz. Now, how about Yosef? Is Yosef ready to reunite? So... It's interesting because you look at the story and we, and we look at it with the, from the standpoint that we already know what's going to happen. And sometimes that does, a dis- us, uh, it does, it does us a disservice because, again, um, we, we, can, we can only truly understand the story if we see it unfolding before our eyes. It's not so clear that Yosef is for sure going to reveal himself. And this is important because 
if Yosef, because again, if Yosef planned to reveal himself the whole time, what's the point in putting it off? You could say, oh, it's because he wants to, to give the brothers a chance to redeem themselves. Maybe, and, and I, I, don't, I, I think that's definitely part of it, but it is a little bit strange because Yosef pushes very far, and the question is, why does he push so far? Now, let's, let's skip to the end now. We were asking, why is this Parsha ending on a cliffhanger? Not characteristic of the Torah to end on a cliffhanger. So, I want to pose a possibility. And that possibility is, what if, really, there is a sort of conclusive ending in Parsha's Miketz before our very eyes, and we just don't notice it. And you know why we don't notice it? We don't notice it because we know the future. Because we know the future, it keeps us from seeing the story as is. So, how does the Parsha actually end? Well, the brothers... Um, are called back into Yosef's palace because, again, Yosef says, my goblet is gone, and I think one of you stole it. And they say, absolutely not. They say, you could take us as slaves if one of us has it. And Yosef says, nonsense. I'm just going to take the one who, who, who stole it. And, of course, Yosef finds the goblet in the bag of Benjamin. And Yehuda steps up, right? Yehuda says, Oh my gosh! You know, you, you you have found the sin in our hands. You know, we don't like. I don't think we we intended to do anything wrong. But you know what? Like we're we're guilty. What can we possibly say? But says Yehuda, let me be the let, let me go, um, um, be your slave. The you know the, let let Benjamin go home and I'll I'll stay with you. Right? We're not even in Vayigash yet. This is all still in Mikates. You know, Vayigash is Vayigash, love Yehuda, Yehuda steps forward, and we have that emotional showdown. We're not at the emotional showdown yet. We're building up to that, and we know that cliffhanger is coming. But what's the, what's the ending of Miketz? The ending of Miketz is where Yosef says, okay, no, I, Yosef says, I'm a man of my word. All of you can go. I just want this one. Yehuda tries. He says, I'm stronger. You know, let me do it. Let me, let, let, let me stay. And yet, again, Yosef says, that's it. No, no. He, he just, you know, he shuts him down. He says, you guys can go home. That's the ending. That's the ending of the Parsha. The ending of the Parsha is, you guys are all allowed to go home. And Binyamin stays. Okay, stop the tape. Don't actually, because um, if you stop the tape, you won't hear the rest of the podcast. We end the Parsha there. Now, it doesn't help us at this moment to know that Yehuda is going to step forward again. Let's assume all possibilities. Because I think that's what the Chumash wants us to do at this point. Assume all possibilities. We see very clearly that Yosef is looking for all the right things so that he can reunite with his brothers. And even though the brothers don't know that they're standing before Yosef, will notice that they also have this readiness to reunite with Yosef. Not only do they express their regret over having allowed him to be sold so many years before, but we see Yehuda saying, I'm going to stand up for Binyamin, don't worry. We see, even in Chazal, they say that, um, you know, that, that the, um, they, they go down to Mitzrayim with the intention of not just getting provisions and food, 
but they have intentions of possibly finding Yosef. Because I'll say this, this is on their agenda. They're like, is Yosef here somewhere? They, they, they would even ask people. And in fact, when Yosef is interrogating them, accusing them of being spies, so according to the Midrash, he gets this information out of them that, that, that then he understands that they are willing to kill to get Yosef back. So we see all of the beginnings of a reunion. We see the circumstances almost just right so that the brothers can reunite. The question is, why doesn't it happen? Why, why doesn't that happen all in Parshas Mikates? And the answer, I think, is very important. There are these two camps. There's the Ben Rachel camp, the Ben Leah camp. And these two camps are naturally at odds with one another. And these two camps still exist. In fact, it may be more than two. Klal Yisrael is a bunch of fragments right now. And as we are a bunch of fragments, there are some easy ways of getting out of things. There are some very hard ways of getting out of things. And sometimes those hard ways require confrontation, right? Because the question is, what do you want to be the end goal? Is the end goal that you want to reunite? Is the end goal that you'll reunite if it's convenient for you? Or is it that you're going to do anything you can to reunite? So Yosef has demonstrated his readiness, and the brothers have demonstrated their readiness. And now the, the ball is in the court of Yehuda and friends. Now, what could have happened? In, this, in the event that, that Yehuda and the brothers allowed themselves to be shut down by Yosef, they would have said, okay, listen, you know, we tried our best. Let's go home. We, we didn't have a choice. You know, maybe Yehuda would have stayed and the rest of the brothers would have gone back and Yehuda would have, you know, not left Binyamin's side, perhaps. But that could have happened. And we know that Binyamin wouldn't have actually been a slave. Yosef would have said to Binyamin, let's start a new life together as brothers. You know, um, you're, you're, you're finally out of that terrible family. You know, I thought they were going to stand up for you, or I was hoping they would stand up for you, but I didn't actually know. And they showed me by not standing up for you that they have not learned anything. All right, that, 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 that's what could have been. But what I think is also important is not only was that what could have been, but that would have been the default. This is the important thing. You have to prove that you are not what you were before by not being what you were before right now. And just because Yehuda has expressed this readiness to be better this time, that does not mean anything until you're actually being better. The story ends where it does on the default. You guys can go home, Binyamin stays with me. That's the end of the story. And that's the default end of the story, unless Avayigashi love Yehuda happens. But the story ends where it does, because even when the, with the tension being high, even knowing the future, forget the future for a second, the story right now ends with Yosef saying, I'm ready to just keep Benjamin with me, and I'll have my family. You guys, you, you separate. You know, we'll separate ways, just like with Lavan and Yaakov. They decide to part ways and never see each other again. That could have been Yosef Benjamin on the one hand, B'nai Rachel together, B'nai Leah, you guys go home, you'll be safe. We'll all be safe, but we'll be safe and we'll be away from each other. Right, Yosef was never going to let anything bad happen to Binyamin. And that's, you know what, that would have been a very convenient ending for the story. It's very convenient when we just decide to go our separate ways. But that's not what Hashem wants. And sometimes for us, when we are 
at odds with someone else. The convenient thing is to just ignore, to just walk away, say, let's make nothing of that. But that's not what happens in our Parsha. Or at least, that's not what happens in next week's Parsha. But right now, the default is set. The default is always, we could, set, we could be peaceful away from each other. You know, we don't have anything to do with each other. And that's it. We might have, we might have the readiness to cooperate, but we don't have the fire burning saying that we don't have another choice but to be together and to love each other. No one's going to force you to love each other. No one's going to force you to, to, to engage in self-sacrifice. That's something that you have to actively do. The default is not that self-sacrifice happens. That's something that you have to effortfully make happen. And right now, where Mikates ends is before anything like that happens. The default is we will go our separate ways. B'nai Rachel on the one hand, B'nai Leah on the other. If you want to see a reunion, you have to make that reunion happen. And the ball's in your court. And that's how Parshami Kates ends. It ends conclusively with the default circumstance. And if a, and if a reversal is going to happen, Yehuda's going to make it happen. And of course, in Parshas Vayigash, that's ultimately what happens. So that takes us through Parshas Mikates. And what we're going to see in the coming Parsha is how that unfolds. And just because, again, we know the future does not mean there are not surprises to come. I guarantee you, you tune in next week to Parsha Panorama for Parsha's Vayigash, your mind will be blown when you see exactly how the fragments come together. You might know the story, but there is a meta story that you might not see. And Bez Vashem next week, I'll show it to you. So that's all for this Parsha Panorama. Tune in next week, only here on the database.